0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Today is the conclusion of our our series on generosity. So every August we take a piece of our vision statement or sometimes the whole thing and we walk through it and we've been focusing on generosity, that we want to be a people living generously. And that title, it came out of just as we reflected over the past 40 years. So 40 years ago, 30 people under 30 years old met somewhere in downtown Tyler and they prayed and they opened God's word and they they were hoping this thing called Bethel would make a go of it and stick. And y'all, they had no idea, no idea that God would do exceedingly abundant more than they ever thought. Case in point, us. Y'all, they never pictured us. They never pictured five campuses and having a place in White House. And I hadn't even been born yet. They couldn't even know me. And yet God has done so much. And we're also kicking off a two-year investment campaign where we're wanting to do for others what was done for us. We're thinking about the next 40 years and, and all that God may exceedingly abundantly do in the future. So I encourage you to grab a booklet. We've got plenty of them on the back table. If you have not gotten one, I encourage you to grab one. If you've gotten one and lost it, if you've gotten one and lost it and then gotten one and lost it again, that's okay, we got plenty. So I encourage you to grab those. And there's devotionals that you can go through as a family. There's a on in history. There's probably a lot of stuff you'll find out about Bethel that you may not have known. Uh, I encourage you to grab one of those. Also, all of you in your chair should have had one of these, our commitment card. So I encourage you to grab one of those. You may have brought one from home that you got last week. If you didn't, we've got plenty for you. And for our members, we're going to ask you to fill out one of these at the end of the service. A quick word for our visitors. If you're a guest with us, if you've been a guest with us several Sundays, maybe, hey, listen, we are so glad you're here. And uh, I want you to know, you know, the, the spiritual principles of what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely apply to you. They apply to everyone. I firmly believe that. But the specific ask does not. The specific ask is for our members, our regular attendees, the people who would say, Bethel Bible Church is my home. If you're not a believer here this morning, listen, again, I'm so glad you're here. And the specific ask is not for you. We don't want anything from you. I would invite you instead today to just observe, but observe with like a lingering question in your heart and in your head. Why are they doing this? Why would a group of people joyfully give their material possessions with no perceived immediate benefit for themselves? And I'm telling you, if you can arrive at the answer to that question, you'll know why we do everything that we do. You know, there's a new documentary out. I haven't seen it. I just watched the previews. It's called We Met in Virtual Reality. And the whole thing is filmed in virtual reality. And they interview all these people that have almost every kind of relationship you could think of. I mean, friendships, clubs, organizations, teams, there's classrooms with teachers and students, even marriages. And the people have never met in person. They have only met each other's avatar of one another. The relationships only exist in virtual reality. And so you can imagine, you know, there's tons of people, all these people all over the world, They sit down, they turn on their computer, they put on their virtual headset and they log on and then they operate in all these communities and all these relationships. And then they take the headset off and they turn the computer off and then they they go off into a completely separate community and set of relationships and almost never do the two meet. They never meet. You know, I think many people have a relationship with God in virtual reality. You know, we come to church, we pray, we do some spiritual stuff, usually on certain days of, of the week, and then we head out to the separate life. And so we go to work, or we go to some activities, or we go shopping, or or we go on vacation. And we—that's another world, though. That's the tangible world. That's kind of real life, and almost never do the two meet. You know, too many times we're like we're like the farmer who went to church and. With the old preacher, and the old preacher, man, he's, he's giving them the business over their money. I mean, he's leaning in hard, hellfire and brimstone. Finally, in the middle of his sermon, he looks directly at this farmer, and he says, Farmer, if you had $1,000, would you give $100 to God? Farmer doesn't even have to think. He just says, Yep, what if I had it? Then he says, All right, farmer, if you had five cows, would you give one of those cows to God? Farmer says, Yep, what if I had it? Preacher said, Well, let me ask you this farmer if you had two pigs, if you had two pigs, would you give one of those pigs to God? All of a sudden, the farmer paused and he scowled. He said, Preacher, you're getting personal now. You know I have two pigs. (laughs) See, it's easy to be generous in theory, isn't it? Oh, yeah, we love the idea. And anyone can be generous in virtual reality. What about with what God has actually given us? The actual stuff we have, our actual daily, real life. See, this is the purpose of generosity. It, it, It makes sure we move from theory to practice. It makes sure what we believe moves into how we behave, you see. And listen, the Bible warns us. We've looked over the past few weeks. The Bible's got some stern warnings for us that if we claim to follow him, to love him, to want to honor him, but God doesn't make it into our calendar, our wallet, our work, our relationships. The Bible says, look, listen, you're kidding yourself. You're telling a story about yourself to yourself, but your material life betrays you. It says what you actually believe. So the Bible has warnings for us, but the Bible also has a promise for us. The Bible promises us that, listen, if we will trust him, that God will use our material life for something so much bigger than you. And that's actually what you were created for. Your real, tangible, albeit temporary life was created to have eternal impact. Today we're going to look at Psalm 90. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open them. Turn them on, unlock them, however you do that these days. And let's look at Psalm 90. And the psalmist here, he begs us not to just have a relationship with God in virtual reality, but to live our material lives for what is eternal. The big idea of this psalm is our big idea for the sermon today. If it won't last, it's not worth it. If it won't last, it is not worth it. So let's read, we'll read the first six verses and talk about them a little bit. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and it withers. What the psalmist is trying to do here in the first part of the psalm is contrast us with God. He's trying to let us know God is everything that you are not. And He begins by saying, listen, your your life is temporary. His is everlasting. I love the way he starts. He says, God is our dwelling. So, Little context, this is a psalm from when they are coming out of the 40 years in the wilderness about to enter the promised land. And so we've studied Deuteronomy 8 in your booklets. There's Deuteronomy 29. It's all kind of that same context. So for 40 years, they'd been living in tents. They wake up in the morning. It's kind of like being in the Buffalo River. Wake up in the morning, you pack up your tent, go for a little while, and you unpack it, and you set it back up, and it's all temporary. But he says the whole time, the whole time, all those 40 years in those tents, the whole time, we were right at home. Because God was their dwelling, not some lousy tent. And listen, this is important. This is important for you to know. No matter how big your house is, it is essentially a glorified tent. That's all it is. It's not permanent. You were not created for it. You were created to dwell with God. God is your dwelling place. And so he says, Unlike these temporary tents that we all live in, God is everlasting. So when God is our dwelling, this home, it it never crumbles. God always was and he always will be. You, however, so verse 3 through 6, the rest of this part, is all about the fact that your life is short. This is important for us to remember because we have a distorted view of the length and the importance of our lives. I mean, it's the most natural thing in the world to us. So he, he compares us to a few things. He, he compares us to a flood. So remember again, the context is the desert, this barren desert, when all of a sudden when it finally rains, a flash flood can come. And you've probably all seen videos lately from all over Texas, uh, down in Utah, and these places the, in the desert that got a lot of rain and all these flash floods came. And so in an instant, and almost in a, in a moment, you just see this new river come and wash away all these things that were there. And so he's saying, listen, our life... It's gone in a flash. It's here one moment and then it's gone. Not only is it gone quickly, it's quickly forgotten. We're a dream. So you know how it works. You wake up in the morning, you had some crazy dream, and then how long is it? Like 5 minutes later, you can't remember a single detail about your dream. Within an hour, you don't you couldn't even tell yourself if you had a dream or not. That is our life. It's quickly forgotten. And he says we're like the grass that appears in the desert. And this is a A brilliant metaphor. Because again, they they would have been intimately familiar with this. They would have seen this every day for 40 years. And y'all, it's so true. It's such a picture of our world. He's he's saying there's a deception to this world. So it starts promising, but then it fades. It, It doesn't stick around. It doesn't last and so you, again you can picture you're in the desert and there's no life it's barren but then you wake up and from the, the cool of the evening from the morning just a, a little sprig of grass has, has happened to, to sprout up it's popped up in the wasteland now you know what would be totally foolish Well, you would never do it would be totally foolish to look at that one little sprout and think we've made it to the promised land look how fertile the land is and all can grow here let's just stop here and camp out here because, you know, it, it really in just a few moments before the day is done, the blazing sun is going to scorch that grass and it will be gone. The nature of the desert will soon show itself. Now it sounds foolish. We, we would say, oh, of course, no way we would do that. But, y'all, we do it all the time. We do it every day. How often do we see the little blades, the little sprigs this world has to offer and then decide to invest our whole life in them? All our money, all our energy goes into making ourselves comfortable and happy right here, right now, but it's a desert. It won't last. In fact, how many many times have you bought the thing or you've left on the vacation and just like that grass, I mean, that day, Before your head hits the pillow, it has ceased making you happy anymore. Like, the happiness that it started with has faded. The whole family's arguing, you know, the toy broke, whatever it is. It doesn't even last a day. So we got all these things, you know, YOLO, FOMO, carpe diem, if we want to be real intellectual with it. But has it ever crossed your mind that all that stuff you're getting may not be worth getting? It will not last. And and listen, the psalmist's point here isn't that uh, stuff is bad or that, you know, nothing matters. He's just saying, remember, it goes quicker than you think. It will not last. And if it will not last, it's not worth your life. It's not worth it. So maybe, maybe we actually don't have the best perspective. On life sometimes. Maybe sometimes we think the things that are so important actually aren't that important. Maybe a a life built on the everlasting God is actually a far better investment than anything this world has to offer. Amen. Amen. Let's pick it back up. Verse 7, 7 through 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? His point here is, you are sinful, but God is holy. And y'all, I know in that section, you're like, wow, this is a feel good sermon of the year. This is great. I know these are some heavy words. You know, God's anger. Ooh. Again, we got to understand the context. So, God is not a bully. He's, this isn't some reactive anger. This is not God's with a temper out of control. There's something that God tells us over and over again, every book of the Bible, all over the place. It's not just the like Old Testament thing. And that's this God is holy. And God can't cease to be holy because if he did, he would cease to be God. And so he cannot just overlook injustice. He can't just ah, forget about it, about sin. He can't turn a blind eye. And so over and over and over again, God says, I want to bless you, but I cannot bless sin. And they, I'm convinced, they read this psalm differently than maybe We read it, because remember the context, wandering in the desert for 40 years. And when we say wandering, it kind of of makes it sound like they're lost, like they don't know what's happening, and they're confused. They don't know where to go. Y'all, they weren't confused. They knew exactly why they were there. They had found the promised land early on. They knew where it was. But doubt, fear, disobedience, grumbling, sin caused them to have to wander around for 40 years because God would not let them enter. So this psalm is coming from a generation well aware of their disobedience and of their sin. And so the tone here isn't God is so mean. The tone here is well-deserved judgment for relentless sin. And so finally he says in verse 13, "Just, just return, O Lord, how long? And so there's this sense of mourning over what life can be like. It's a lament, but understand it's not a lament over judgment, it's a lament over sin. And so I think we ought to ask ourselves, why do we work so hard trying to find satisfaction in a sinful world? Shouldn't there be a healthy dissatisfaction from God's people? A healthy weariness of falling so easily into sin, of being in a a place where we so easily doubt and forget God? That's the weariness this psalmist is experiencing. But then he turns a corner. In verse 12, it's kind of like, so what? I got God's perspective on what my life really is. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So how do we respond? We respond by numbering our days. And, y'all, he doesn't mean like God tells you, you know, you're praying and God leans over like 1,372. You don't know the exact number of your days. You just know that they are numbered. You realize that your days are limited and finite. There's a guy named Lewis Smeads. He's a real well-respected, well-loved, accomplished author, theologian. He, he taught for 25 years at Fuller, Fuller Seminary. Tragedy happened in 2002. He was up putting up some Christmas lights, fell, died suddenly. He just purchased a journal. He was a big journaler, and shortly after his death, his family found that journal that he had just started, and they opened it up, and they read these words in the front of the journal. He says, I brought a brand-new date book yesterday, the kind I use every year, spiral-bound, black imitation leather, covering pages and pages of blank boxes. Every square has a number. They tell me which day of the month I'm in. Every square is a a frame for one episode of my life. And before I'm through with this book, I will fill the squares with classes I teach, people whom I ate lunch with, everlasting committee meetings. And these are only the things I cannot afford to forget. I fill the square too with things I do not write down to remember, thousands of cups of coffee, some praying, and a hope gestures of help to my neighbors. Whatever I do, it has to fit inside one of those little squares. The fact is, i live one square at a time. The four lines that make up each box are the walls of time that organize my life. Each box has an inv- invisible door that leads to the next square. As if by silent stroke, the door opens and I'm pulled through, as if by a magnet, sucked into the next square. There, I'll again fill the time frame that seals me, fill it with my busyness, just as I did the square before. As I get older, the squares seem to get smaller. And then one day, I'll walk into a square that has no door. There will be no mysterious opening, no walking into an adjoining square. It will be a terminal square, and I will not know which square that will be. It's a man that had a Psalm 90 perspective. He was deeply aware of two things number one, I only have so many boxes. And number two, I have no idea which one will be the last. This is good for you, men and women. The Bible reminds us of this. This is, again, one of those, every book of the Bible, every genre of the Bible, it is all over the place. Your squares are numbered. And it is good for us because it gives us the right perspective. It helps us realize what is important and what is not. You know, I'm in that stage of life where, y'all, I swear, sometimes I leave my home in the morning and then I come back at night and my kids are taller than they were when I left. Does this happen to y'all? My goodness. And then, then my phone does this thing where it likes to make me cry. So that my photos app, it'll, every day it will pop up like this day, six years ago. And so I look at it, and my kids, they're like so little. And it helps me realize how big they are now. And, I, you know, I, cr- not on, I don't cry on the outside. I cry on the inside a little bit, okay? <laughs> it's so good for me. It slows me down. It shakes me out of my autopilot. You know those moments I come home and I don't just go through the motions. I'm like, hey, guys, let's, let's play a game. Let's do something together. Let's use our time well. I want to use each moment well because I can feel it moving so fast. Sometimes we need to feel it moving so fast. You know, when, when you realize how short life is, it doesn't become meaningless. It becomes precious. You become attentional. You become aware. And so the psalmist says we get something when we number our days. We get wisdom. Phrase you'll hear throughout your Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord, what does that mean? That, the fear of the Lord, it means to feel your smallness and be awed by his bigness. That's what fear is. It's not like, ah, run away. No, no, you feel your smallness. You're awed by his bigness. And the Bible says that, right there, that. That is the starting line for a wise life. That's how you begin a journey of wisdom. The Bible says also the opposite can be true. When we think too highly of this world, when we think too highly of ourselves, we can be very foolish. When we forget what is temporary, what is eternal, our days will be wasted. We start to buy stock in the Titanic, and it doesn't last. It's sad, but it's so true. Look around. you. Many people spend more of their money on coffee and TV than they ever will on the kingdom of God. And listen, I, I have to warn you, if that's you today, there will come a day when you will look back and you will say, what a waste. I was such a fool. The things that, may feel really important from an earthly perspective, from God's perspective, will not last. Is there any of that in your life? Is there any of that that, yeah, maybe yesterday, maybe even this morning coming here, you thought were so important, but when compared to God's perspective, all of a sudden it's not important at all. Maybe God wants to use this, his word, right now to give you a Psalm 90 perspective, to make you wise. And next, the psalmist, he, he points us in the wise direction, in the most excellent way. We'll pick it up in verse 14. This is his prayer. Satisfying the mor- us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is where the psalm has been leading from the beginning. What if I told you your short, temporary, troublesome life can intersect with the everlasting God? The temporary fleeting can graft together with everlasting to everlasting. Notice notice verse 14. Notice what satisfies him in the morning. It's not some temporary, disappointing blade of grass. God's steadfast love can satisfy you every morning. Then he says, "All the days, not just all the days, all the years aren't full of mourning and evil anymore. They are replaced with gladness." He says, instead of judgment, God's favor can be honest." How? How does that happen? Well, what happens when your life becomes about something much bigger than you? That's when it happens. It says in verse 16, one commentator called verse 16, the the crowning contrast. So the psalm is full of contrast between us and God. And here we get to the, the crowning one. His work will outlive me. He says, it will be shown to my children. So my life, it's a sigh. It's a blade of grass. It's a flash flood. But his work, nothing will stop. Future generations will see it. His glorious power is like the Energizer bunny. It just keeps going and going and going. And, and, verse 17, you get to be a part of it. You are not just a spectator in God's work. You are a participant. And this is the request of the psalm. This is what he closes with, and he repeats it twice. Establish the work of my hands. That word establish, it means firmly grounded. It means anchored. It means fixed. It's like a house on Firm pillars are a firm foundation. It's stable. It's secure, It will not be moved. It is everlasting. The flood cannot sweep it away. The desert sun cannot burn it up. The psalmist is saying here, his everlastingness can come through your hands. And I love how he says our hands. He, he doesn't say our hearts, our intentions, the cloud, virtual reality. These things, these very hands. The, The physical things I do with my hands here and now can work for God's kingdom. It's not virtual reality. It is tangible. God says, I'll use your hands for my steadfast love, for my glorious power, for my favor. The psalmist is saying here, he's praying, he's imploring, God, make my life matter. I don't want to work my whole life with these hands for nothing. So I have to pick out a theme. Of the, here, here's what I think the theme of the psalm is. Your life has purpose. It's just not you. You are not the purpose for your own life, but your life is filled with purpose. And I'm telling you, the day you figure that out can be the best day of your life. That is how Christians live. And that, what Psalm 90 is giving us, is Christian stewardship. You know, unfortunately, I... Look back, you know, I was kind of raised in church, been as a kid, and I got looking back and thinking about, you know, how how did I come to understand stewardship from a Christian perspective? I have to say, you know, what I think a lesser version of stewardship has been in our culture for a long time. You know, and it sounds good, it sounds reasonable, but it is far short of the biblical picture. So what passes for Christian stewardship is, is essentially this, I give some of my stuff to God. Now, there's a second part of that sentence that we usually don't say out loud, and it's that the other 90%, that's for me to do what I want to with. You know, Jesus, Jesus taught three times about tithing. Three times. Each time, the message is exactly the same. It's the same point he's trying to get across. Every time, it is an attack on the Pharisees' pride. For thinking that by giving 10%, they were buying God's favor. Or thinking that 10% was a substitute for their heart. Or thinking that God was worthy of anything less than everything. See, the, the truth is, it's all His. So Christian stewardship, it's not I give some of my stuff to God. Christian stewardship is, He's given some of His stuff to me. And He's entrusted me to it. Like how one writer defined... Christian stewardship. He says it's a radical, holistic view of the resources God has entrusted to us with the mindset of using it to maximize His kingdom. That's Psalm 90. Establish the work of my hands to maximize your kingdom. Christian stewardship is is when we get to a place where anything and everything that God is passionate about and working toward, he invites us to partner with him and he gives us some resources to do it. Have you ever laid out your whole budget before God? Or your whole whole calendar? All of it. Not just Sundays, not just 10%. I mean, the whole thing. I say, God... Each dollar and each square is all yours. It's all yours. Would you show me how to maximize it for your kingdom? Men and women, there is no more joyful life you can have than that. And so understanding, we we talk about living generously a lot here. It's one of the three pillars of of Bethel. And so we got to be clear about what we mean and what we don't mean. So what we don't mean is that we give God a little more of our stuff, maybe a little more than the person sitting next to me. No, no, it's all his. And, you all also, we, we don't mean that we guilt people out of their money. Listen, I want to be clear. If, if we have to choose between, you know, guilt and legalism and keeping the lights on, guys, we'll shut the lights off because that's not what this thing is all about. What we mean when we say living generously, we mean 2 Corinthians 9.7, not reluctantly or under, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We mean Psalm ninety seventeen. God, would you establish the work of our hands so that we can live for something bigger than ourselves? See, We, we mean that we don't meet, just meet God in virtual reality with our hands, with our feet, every dollar, every square we want to use to maximize His kingdom. And so that's what all, this campaign we've been doing. It's all about. This is how we believe that God is using our church, our resources, even our wealth, to, enreach, to reach increasing numbers of people in East Texas with the gospel, with his kingdom. And we say, you know, there is nothing we'd rather spend our dollars and our days doing. And so we get very practical with it. We get very real life with it. And so our goal is to raise $6 million over the next two years from all five of our campuses. There's more details I can give you in case you haven't been here, though. That really goes to three things. Number one, facilities for all five of our campuses. Number two, greatly reducing our debt, maybe by as much as two-thirds we're praying for. And thirdly, missions. We want to build another school and a church in Sierra Leone. And we had a guy come and share and show us pictures all about that. I encourage you to watch the service online if you weren't here last week. So here's what I want to invite everyone to do. I want everyone to invite everyone to grab their card here. And I think we've got a slide, too, so you can fill out an electronic card we have the world's largest QR code. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, if you want to do it electronically or on your phone. Um, and first, let me say thank you. Already, people have been so generous. Already, y'all, we have people who have never given to Bethel before who are giving to Bethel now. Y'all, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I want to talk through, through this just a little bit because we've got some questions, and then I'm going to ask Adam to play for us. Here. And so you'll see on there, there's, there's a blank, and we're asking you to put in there not which, what you can give this month or next month, but over the next two years, the sum total of what you think you can give. And then you can tell us, hey, I, I plan to give this monthly or one time, and we don't need to know exactly when, just sometime in the next two years. Now, y'all, let me say this, okay? Everyone look up here. This is not a blood oath, okay? This is an estimate, of, a commitment on your part. We're not going to hound you for it. We're not going to send out, there's no Gestapo, giving Gestapo that's going to come track you down. And we understand things will change. And so if you ever need to change that number, you perfectly are allowed to. And that's totally fine, okay? Some have asked, okay, do I have to do it today? And the answer is no. You know, especially if you feel like you need more time to seek to get your heart in the right place, then you can take this card with you. You can complete any time. We're going to leave the black boxes in the lobby. We're going to leave them out for a while and you can complete it online anytime you want to uh, as well. But I'd caution you. Here's the caution. Guys, sometimes waiting is obedience. Sometimes waiting is disobedience. And only you know. Only you know where you are with God. And that, that's why we say giving is more spiritual than it is financial. You have to actually do the hard work on this, guys. Now, if, if I can be honest, you know, I I don't like asking people for money. That's probably pretty obvious up here right now. But I love, I am thankful for the times that we get to wake up and get God's perspective and make sure our whole life is used to maximize for his kingdom. When we can get out of the virtual reality and into our material lives. And so, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, should I fill out one of these cards? I'm going to give you five reasons. Sorry, Adam, you got up here a little early. But five reasons... That's, I'm asking you to fill out a card today, okay? One is biblical, one is uh, cultural, one's going to be practical, one's going to be personal, and then I got a fifth, we'll, just call it, we'll call that one the bonus, the bonus reason, okay? Biblical. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His, he gave his firstborn, his first fruits, his highest and best Gift. And we've said all along, those who experience the grace of God become like him. There is only one reason we give, and it's because he gave, and we model him. Second, the cultural reason. Making a commitment is an antidote to our society, guys. We live in an age where very few people want to commit to anything, a job, a marriage, a church, anything. We're taught to be consumers, and consumers love choices and hate commitments. And so writing it down, making a commitment, it swims against the current of our consumer religion. We we get to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? I'm going to commit to something bigger than me. It's good for us. Third reason is practical. Guys, it helps us plan to make good decisions. We need good information. And so knowing what you plan to do helps us make a plan. So practically, it helps us out for you to fill out this card. Fourth, personal. And I mean personal for you, not for me. It produces spiritual growth. That's what this whole series has been about. There is no sanctification without generosity. Men and women, sanctification does not just exist in virtual reality. And so there's some people here. Some of, for some of you, the worst thing you can do is give at a level you won't even notice. Give in a way that requires no sacrifice whatsoever. But the best thing? The best thing that could happen to you is that God calls you to give more sacrificially than you ever planned on. Because in doing that, your heart begins to understand it's all His. Your heart begins to loosen a white knuckle grip on mine and my stuff. Okay, here's the bonus. You ready for the bonus reason? Make your life count. Be a part of something bigger than yourself. You can be a part of God's continuing work through the generations. Don't buy stock in the Titanic. Invest where you will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Invest where you will have people maybe for all eternity come up to you and say, I'm here because of what you did, because 40 years ago you didn't even know me. But you made sure the gospel could move forward in East Texas. Listen, anything less isn't worth your life.